1: You could like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, F-P-B-P, stand for free the Black Panthers, and up the black police, feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin sale pro, show, they got me started, lion hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. televised black power be scared guys that be standing there like they paralyzed huh? we say for the system cause we above the system we keep ar's and pistols shotguns that's worth the crystal but that's for self-defense make sure we have no issues be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you this for them freedom fighters that lost they freedom until they freedom we screaming, in carpe diem. this for the general King Khalid Muhammad We gon' make your day a holiday I fuck okay, me, i mad Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, Stand for Free the Black Panthers It's up the Black Police That 13th Amendment Tryna make a slave of me You can like my body, can't trap my mind Not to ever be free, okay Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, Stand for Free the Black Panthers It's up the Black Police Feds infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles, but we still here. Been a bill here, up coin tail bro. RBG, 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 RBG My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, cause that's really all I need We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory Black women, and goddess, regardless My heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish, don't tolerate it Melanated, so you gotta hate it But Rock up up another conversation Trump finna to get inaugurated, damn Unify or die, NBPP.org
2: We have a, a, a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prison. We have 50%
0: unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prison. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indentured servant unless you could acquire. The
2: amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation.
3: Hello, everyone. My name is Catherine Gillette and I'm the senior grassroots mobilization organizer at Network. I am thrilled to welcome you all to our program, Faith in Reparations, An Interfaith Demand for Reparations. We have an incredible lineup of speakers tonight, including Reverend Dr. Iva E. Cruthers, Rabbi Jonah Pesner, Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, Sister Anita Baird, Rabbi Aria Bernstein, and Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee all of whom who have been leaders in the fight for reparations. We will also be joined by two truth tellers, James Powell and Maria Smith, who are black network supporters who will share about the harmful impact of racism on their families and communities. Now, before we hear from our speakers, I wanna take a moment to thank you all. So many of you have been making phone calls, sending emails, writing letters to the editor, and even hosting reparations events with us this past year. It has been an honor working with you all in reparations, and I want you to know how incredibly grateful we all are for your advocacy and support. The momentum around the establishment of a Federal Reparations Commission is building, and we are closer than ever to making it a reality, thanks to the the dedication of so many. So, let's get our program started. It is my pleasure to introduce Network's Deputy Executive Director and Chief Equity Officer, Joan Neal, for opening
4: remarks. Joan. Thank you, Catherine. I want to add my welcome and thank you all for being with us tonight to take a stand on behalf of reparations for African Americans as a result of the legacy of slavery. While this particular campaign for reparations has been going on for months now, the moral call for reparations started a long time ago, led by many of the organizations represented here, as well as congressional leaders including Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, who we hope to hear from shortly. Tonight, we are pleased to have a range of faith speakers join us to urge President Biden to fulfill his promise and sign an executive order establishing a federal commission to study reparations as outlined in H.R. 40. As most of you know, H.R. 40, a bill named for the 40 acres and a mule promised but never given to enslaved people after emancipation, was first introduced in Congress 33 years ago, but has never been passed into law. Since 2019, Representative Sheila Jackson Lee has been the bill's major sponsor. And of course, the Biden-Harris administration promised in their document, Lift Every Voice, the Biden Plan for Black America, they promised to tackle systemic racism and the continuing impact of slavery by supporting a study of reparations. We are gathered this evening because, as a country, we have a moral obligation to study the harms of slavery and its legacy and to ask what amends must be made to generations of African Americans whose lives have been fundamentally harmed. The damaging legacy of white supremacy and the enduring racial wealth gap it produced must no longer be allowed to deny black people access to good health, educational and economic outcomes. As a country, as a people, we cannot move beyond this original sin, this evil, until and unless the country tells the truth about our history and takes responsibility for the wrong it has done to our citizens. This is the work that must be done, and this is the work that we have been doing. But by summer this year, HR 40 had still not passed the Congress, and so we turned our attention to an executive order, which is well within the President's authority to do. And there is precedent for such an executive order. President Jimmy Carter created a commission on wartime relocation and internment of civilians which led then to reparations for Japanese Americans interned during World War II. This precedent makes the clear case for reparations for African Americans. And so we are not alone in asking the president to act. On June 10th, June 10th of this year, a group of senators wrote to President Biden asking him to sign the executive order without delay in july network joined an interfaith group of organizations including our jewish quaker muslim lutheran methodist unitarian and baptist partners in a letter sent to the president asking him to establish such a commission we also worked with the hr 40 coalition on a press conference urging the president to act right away and now tonight our network community of spirit-filled justice seekers, is bringing our voices to President Biden again. In a letter signed by more than 2,000 Catholic sisters and associates of congregations of women religious, we implore President Biden to answer this urgent moral imperative, to advance justice, and to build a better future for our country. Today, or tomorrow, we will deliver this letter to President Biden and request a meeting with his staff. Later this evening, you will hear how you too can contact the White House. My friends, it is urgent that the President act now. Clearly, with the change of control in the House, it is unlikely that H.R. 40 will pass. Therefore, we call upon President Biden to fulfill his campaign promise and establish a National Reparations Commission by executive order by the end of this year by the end of 2022. The commission will run for 18 months after it is established. So it's important for us to start now before the president's first term ends. You know, it's clear, we cannot wait any longer. At this point, time is not on our side. We have less than a month to get this effort moving. So we call again, Mr. President, fulfill your promise. Help us find the soul of our nation that you talk about so often, so the country can take a giant step forward in building a new society, an equitable society, one that is finally worthy of the ideals of democracy. Thank you all again for joining us in this urgent effort. Together, we must prevail.
3: Thank you, Jen, for providing that important framework and equipping us to enter this space together. I am so encouraged to hear about the letter 2,000 sisters and associates are sending to President Biden. That's incredible. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce our next speaker who has been a leader in the movement for reparations, Reverend Dr. Iva E. Crothers. Reverend Dr. Iva E. Crothers is the General Secretary of the Samuel Witt Proctor Conference, an interdenominational organization within the African-American faith tradition focused on justice and equity issues. As founding CEO and a trustee of the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference, she has steered the organization as a unique, influential, and esteemed network of faith-based advocates and activists, clergy and lay. Former director of the Black Theology Project, Reverend Dr. Carruthers has a long history of teaching, engagement, and community development initiatives and social justice ministry fostering interdenominational and interfaith dialogue, and leading study tours for the university and church throughout the United States, Caribbean, South America, and Africa. Reverend Dr. Crothers is the professor emeritus and former chairperson of the sociology department at Northeastern Illinois University, and was founding president of Nexus Unlimited, an information and educational technology firm. She was appointed to the White House Advisory Council on the internet. National Information Infrastructure, mega project, and the educational software she developed was awarded a Computer World Smithsonian Award. She is also the founder of Lois House, an urban retreat center in Chicago, Illinois. Reverend Dr. Crothers, it is truly an honor to have you with us this evening.
2: Thank you so much uh, to Sister Joan and to the entire Network family. I just come with gratitude in my heart for the work you are doing, have done. And I come to share as a witness for this moment, because those of us who believe in freedom will not stop until it comes. I am here bringing the voice and the network of the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference, along with the Center for Reparatory Justice Transformation and Remediation, which is a new institution that was born through partnership with McCormick Theological Seminary, committed to very notions of reparatory justice. And there are just a few things I want to say quite simply. I want to talk about the what, the when, the how, and the when, and the what, the where, the how, and the when, the what. I want to suggest that by the power of the Holy Spirit in truth and in faith, we are going to dismantle the dominion theology, which have given rise to centuries of the harm that we can document. We are dismantling those dominion theories and theologies that in large part began with notions we found embedded in the doctrine of discovery, for example, up to the manifestation of that where we now have to grapple with how the world sees and creates this hierarchy of human value that some people are more valuable than others. As we have come out of this COVID moment, this uh, now what has become endemic, we know that we not only have to think about racism in relationship to phenotype, how we look, but also racism in relationship to genotype, what the genome is teaching us. And so we are coming as a witness to say We recognize this was a global movement, the transatlantic slave trade was global, but so is the reparatory justice movement global. And I can testify that in the last year since Durban, I have been on five continents in which this work is being led and facilitated by faith leaders across traditions and denominations who are seeking to undo the harm. The harm that we now see as represented by global Afrophobia, as the World Council of Churches has named it. There is an infection that we are and will commit to getting rid of, and that is what I call this identity delusion and denial syndrome, where some are deluded that they are worth more in human value than others, and they want to deny those who are on the margin. But the faith community has a unique moral agency to interrupt and disrupt and so we come with you witnessing that we are going to interrupt and disrupt the lies and the myths we're going to engage in a global truth-telling campaign there is not enough critical race theory anti-movement going on that is going to deny us the emergence of our truth from cradle to grave we're creating ecosystems around the world that connect faith politicians, practitioners, cross-sectors, and we are creating models of praxis, remediation, and repairing the harm. And so when it comes to the question of when, we're talking about right now. So this executive order, we are demanding it right now. We stand in the ancestral memory of Callie House and Queen Mother Moore and Congressman Conyers who passed the mantle to our dear sister, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee. So from Durban to this new moment in which the United Nations has now declared a permanent forum for people of African descent, we are saying not only are we demanding this executive order to study, but not study just for historical curation, but to study what works grounded in action research because we are seeking remediation and reparatory justice through reparations. I thank you, I thank you for all of you who are a part of the hearing and the viewing audience and collectively we know that the ants ate the elephant.
3: Thank you so much, Reverend Dr. Carruthers. I am sure that our folks are feeling fired up and ready to engage this evening, that was wonderful. Next up, we are going to hear from Rabbi Jonah Pesner. Rabbi Jonah Pesner serves as the director of the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism. He has led the Religious Action Center since 2015. Rabbi Pesner also serves as the senior vice president of the Union for Reform Judaism, a position to which he was appointed in 2011. Named one of the most influential rabbis in America by Newsweek magazine, he is an inspirational leader and tireless advocate for social justice. Rabbi Pesner's work has focused on encouraging Jewish communities to reach across lines of race, class, and faith in campaigns for social justice. In 2006, he founded Just Congregations, which is now incorporated into the Religious Action Center, which engaged clergy, professional, and volunteer leaders in interfaith efforts in pursuit of social justice. Rabbi Pesner was a primary leader in the successful Massachusetts campaign for healthcare access that has provided healthcare coverage to hundreds of thousands and which became a nationwide model for reform. Over the course of his career, he has also led and supported campaigns for racial justice, economic opportunity, immigration reform, LGBTQ equality, human rights, and a variety of other causes. He is dedicated to building bridges to collectively confront anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and other forms of hate and bigotry. Thank you for being with us this evening, Rabbi Pesner.
5: Hello, fellow activists, people of faith, and civil rights champions. Shalom uvracha, blessings and peace. My name is Rabbi Jonah Pesner. I'm the director of the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism, the largest and most diverse denomination in Jewish life. I'm honored to join this evening's panel of faith leaders. Thank you to the Network Lobby for Catholic Social Justice for convening this important gathering in support of remedying the years of injustice experienced by the black community in our country. Our reformed Jewish movement remains committed to showing up in coalition with and for our black members and siblings. We must ensure that this country repents for and repairs its original sin of the enslavement of African people that has left an everlasting legacy of systemic anti-black racism and inequity that threatens people's lives on a daily basis. The Reform Jewish Movement is proud to have a long and rich history in the fight for civil rights and our partnership with the black community. Our historic building in Washington DC was the home to many civil rights organizations and activists, including the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. And of course, for Dr. King. It was in our conference room that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was drafted and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. As a community that experienced a genocide in Europe, persecution throughout history, and intense anti-Semitism in the United States, many Jews instinctively understood the importance of the struggle for civil rights for all people. White supremacists defined all Jews as the other, being cast out by the world that has done the same to the black community for hundreds of years. Inspired by our sacred responsibility to pursue justice, Jews stepped up in powerful ways to take action alongside civil rights activists, marching towards freedom, and in some instances, putting our lives on the line. As Dr. King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to injustice everywhere. The effort to liberate all oppressed peoples remains. We also know that our own Jewish community is tremendously diverse, including Jews of color who are descendants of enslaved African people, along with some who are descendants of early Jewish Americans who were themselves enslavers. For these reasons, our commitment to reparations is part of our internal work to create a more just and equitable Jewish community. I speak to you just over one week after the midterm elections, when Americans across the country came to the polls to make sure that their voices were heard and shape policies that impact people at the state and local levels. We believe that our democracy suffers when citizens are shut out from the democratic process and that the restrictive voting laws that continue to be introduced across our nation are doing just that. These anti-voter laws function as anti-black laws, bringing us to the new era of Jim Crow and a continued fight for civil rights as those same rights we fought for years are being threatened. Racial inequality is present in virtually every aspect of American life. The black community is disproportionately harmed by voting restrictions, attacked on reproductive freedom, low wages, poverty, a higher maternal mortality rate, redlining, incarceration, and more. Our elected officials continue to fail our community members by upholding a state of systemic racial oppression, a sin that violates the sacred tenet of equality and equity between people. The Talmud, the book of Jewish rabbinic literature, teaches that all people are descended from a single person so that no one can say, my ancestor is greater than yours. Our safety is in our solidarity, and our redemption as a nation will only come through our grappling with our history and rectifying past injustices. In 2019, the Reform Jewish Movement passed a resolution which supports the study and development of reparations proposals for African Americans. We have continued and will continue to be active members of the reparations movement as our faith perspectives guide us to fight for racial and reparatory justice. Our Jewish texts are clear on the importance of restitution for wrongs committed. The great sage Moses Maimonides linked the payment of damages to the concept of teshuvah, the Jewish framework for repentance, noting that financial commitment must accompany atonement. Racial healing can only begin to be achieved when this systemic oppression is recognized and accounted for, when this form of teshuvah is actually carried out. As a member and leader of a faith community is my job it's all of our job to learn and practice these teachings to work for a just society that treats each individual fairly as those created in the divine image Jews also know from our own history the importance of restitution for past wrongs Holocaust survivors and their descendants continue to receive reparations from Germany States and local communities have already begun to embark on their journey of providing reparations to black individuals in their communities. These examples should inform how the United States might implement reparations for black Americans on a federal level. Even as 415 members of Congress voted to make Juneteenth a federal holiday, many of those same members are still hesitant to acknowledge the real lasting and ongoing harms of enslavement and systemic racism. When our communities asked our elected officials to pass HR 40 by Juneteenth of this year, again, they failed. Together, we come today with a unifying message. The time for reparations is now. We call on the Biden administration to stick true to their campaign promise of establishing a reparations commission. And if Congress is unable to create this commission through legislation, then the White House must establish this commission through executive order before the end of the year. Let's make it happen. Let this be God's will. Amen.
3: Thank you so much, Rabbi Pesner. In just a few moments, I'm going to share a little bit about network field work on reparations this past year. However, before we get to that, It is my great pleasure to introduce an incredible advocate who we met in Richmond, Virginia. James Powell was one of the lead organizers of our recent Richmond Reparations Vigil. He is also an editor, content producer, and storyteller. Currently, James is the Director of Strategy and Partnerships for the faith-based art collective Trinity Arts, which explores global issues around religion, climate, gender identity, race, and class in order to foster complicated dialogues related to these areas and hoping to inspire positive action. He was the arts editor and head of production for The Tenth, a global independent media company that documents the history, ideas, and aesthetics of the African diaspora through an LGBTQ lens. Before working at The Tenth, James spent seven years at the Clinton Foundation helping to manage operations in the quarterly college internship program. He is a proud graduate of Hampton University and is about preserving and sharing African history of the American South. James, thank you so much for joining us. It is so good to see you again.
6: Hello, Catherine. Thank you so much for that kind introduction and to Network Lobby for providing us with this platform. Uh, Speaking virtually, especially when you are from a call-and-response tradition um, that I was raised in in the Baptist South, presents a challenge of this new virtual etiquette, which typically is asking us to mute out the din um, and where we're taking these, 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 uh, these meetings. Yet, uh, the spirit that I feel from the speakers that have already um, provided their testimonies and is just making me raise my hand over here. And I hope that what little I have to share, um, you will also be in agreement with it. This evening, I was a bundle of nerves thinking of what I could say to not embarrass those that I represent, but I quickly realized my ego was getting in the way because that's not what any of this is about. Uh, I soon realized that the point is what Network Lobby um, uses often when, when having these events, and that is truth-telling. Clifford B. Chambliss, um, my dear friend, uh, brother in arms for social justice, and founder of the faith-based collective known as Trinity Arts, and I were given the task of organizing a vigil in support of U.S. reparations in Richmond, Virginia. Although I believe uh, many places in this country are proper settings to host these types of gatherings, the capital city of my home state has a history which puts it at the epicenter of this topic which is both unfortunate and fortunate. Um, I'm sure that you've heard the slogan, Virginia is for lovers. I heard it often during the summers of my youth pulling at tourist heartstrings to come down to a place where you could just fall in love. Along with the countless public school teachers musing about the importance of a Jeffersonian democracy and a Jeffersonian architecture. But somehow we blazed over that our state was not just for lovers but it was also people who loved slave owning. And its complicated, nuanced legacy of this heralded founding father being at the helm of this wretched institution was also rarely spoken about. Richmond was not the first and only capital of the Confederacy, but by 1860, it was the most industrial, which made it the permanent capital of this breakaway union and virginia was the largest confederate state bringing wealth to what we commonly refer to as the ssb the first families of virginia leading the ton of southern aristocracy but also leading some of the most rulerant forms of human oppression this world has ever seen passing this sentiment and this hatred down to their descendants and those who didn't even have that money have that much money or were not slave owners but who were strivers took hold of the sentiment and held on it for centuries with a clarion call of heritage, not hate. So in a city like ours, Cliff and I really wanted to think about what was the appropriate place to have this visual. We wanted to acknowledge the pain because that is extremely important, but we also wanted to highlight a successful blueprint from the past that gave a nod to the possibility of a collective future so we chose Jackson Ward, and as an optimistic historian in every American tale, I try to find hope, and I feel like you can find Black hope anywhere. So it's not hard when talking about Jackson Ward, and when I arrived at the Black History Museum when I was 15, I knew my life would change forever. The hours spent sitting behind the desk, answering calls, meeting politicians like Congressman Bobby Scott, who I ended up working for, and digging through the archives while organizing my boss's desk, I realized that this place was magical. And it wasn't just a story of Richmond and Virginia. It was a story of America and later on to be a story about reparations. It did not only exist in 1920s Tulsa or Harlem. It existed all over the United States. Because as Alyssa and uh, Catherine asked me to tell a little bit about uh, the history of Jackson Ward it was a place that free slaves started moving to during the Reconstruction by the 1920s. Um, and it became an active and well-known center of black activity. In fact, it was called the birthplace of black capitalism, which I'm sure there's a, a, a bunch of other towns that that can take on that crown. But Jackson Ward was host to a thriving, wealthy black community. We're talking about Maggie L. Walker, who became the first black, first, not first black woman, the first woman in America to lead a successful Bank of the United States, St. Luke Penny Savings, which survived during the Great Depression. We're talking about John Mitchell Jr., who was the editor of the Richmond Planet that was an, a civil rights advocate of the persecutions of people that were going on in the South. It was a hub of culture and arts. The First Lady of Jazz, herself, Ella Fitzgerald, and Duke Ellington, Bilbo Jangle Robinson, performed at the Hippodrome Theater. But unfortunately, um, as we see, based on a study uh, that was completed in June of 2022, the wealth of two nations, the the racial wealth gap, 1860 to 2020, the the gap between uh, white and black and African American wealth continued to widen and that happened in the 1950s and that story is a national story but a very good example of the why is in the late 1950s i think around 1954 the virginia assembly passed legislation to pass the richmond petersburg turnpike which is now part of i-95 to go through jackson ward which tore down many structures and folks lost their homes and a great deal of wealth in fact unemployment to this day is still impacted at an all-time high based on our article from NPR. And we are still seeing, we, we, for, for many years during the 1970s, we saw a destruction of buildings and federal housing projects that were put in this space that was once home to great black businesses and leadership. So, it wasn't. It was a. It was a no-brainer. And so we said we should. We should go to rally, and start at Abner Clay Park. And about 30 of us congregated there in the heart of the New Jackson Ward, in front of the Ebenezer Baptist Church, which Cliff is a member of. That was founded in 1856, which for many years was led by white pastors in fear that black churches meeting would play would be a good place to stage revolts. Even members of the church were listed alongside their master's name if they were enslaved. Some of the first black public schools in Richmond, Virginia were founded in the basement of Ebenezer. We also stood in front of an old armory that was an officer's club and is now home to the Black History Museum. We marched past the interstate, which is now I-95, that divided the community so people could actually see What happened? Community members stood and spoke, Kaya Player and Janice Allen, Janice Allen, the president of Jackson Ward Neighborhood Association. Kia spoke about the loss of her home and how she was given $4,000 by the Medical College of Virginia for compensation. But as Janice Allen speaks, her family also being from Jackson Ward, we lost more than just that. We lost more than just money. We lost community. Our dreams were scattered. So what we are doing now, the work that we are doing now, is so important. And what does Richmond want? And how can President Joe Biden help us by responding to our call of action in the most successful way possible? Of course, it's, we want justice. Of course, there is monetary compensation. Of course, we want those hurtful monuments and the memorials and schools to be taken down, but what we really want is atonement. And that is related to, as architect C.J. Robinson said, C.J. Howard, I'm sorry, from Catholic University said, is related to memory, identity, and aesthetics that all play key roles in the primary medium for monuments, for memorials. And through these memories, through this commemoration, it helps us to make sense of the world and the developing and comprehensive and truthful narrative. And so we are asking for atonement. We are asking for critical race theory in our classrooms. We're at, it, it, it is not just about monetary compensation. Um, and before I keep going on, I, I want to bring on Cliff Chambliss, uh, uh, my colleague, to make sure that he has to see if he has anything else he would like to add. Cliff?
7: I think you're on mute. Thanks, thanks so much, James. I'm not sure if Catherine was going to chime in, but I can proceed if, if Catherine wants me to just waiting for the okay awesome so th- thanks so much James yes just to, to echo uh, everything James said and I'll really focus in on our work with the reconnect Jackson Ward project where we're advocating for land reparations uh, with the new project that's covering interstate 95 and so as James highlighted uh in the 1940s and 1950s, Interstate 95 ran through many black communities throughout the country. And one thing that we're focusing on is making sure that at least land reparations at a minimum, not necessarily focusing on monetary, repar- monetary reparations, the land reparations, are guaranteed to the families of the displaced. And so what we did with our prayer vigil in connection with Network Lobby we brought in community members that were impacted, the descendants of the community members that were impacted, where they actually lost land in a very unfair way. And as he mentioned, there was some compensation, but not in a fair, in a fair way, but in a way that um, was um, essentially pacifying the, the, the family members or the, the inhabitants of the community at the time. And so what we're seeking to do now is to make sure that we have a conversation with the city council, with the city planners, with the state, and even bringing in the U.S. Department of Transportation, so Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who visited Jackson Ward at the kickoff of this uh, ReConnect project, to make sure that if land is literally being created out of thin air, truly being created over an interstate within thin air, that some of that land goes to the descendants of the displaced. And so it's a a multi-pronged approach uh, where we're bringing in multiple stakeholders. But what we also need is buy-in from, again, network lobby, who's been great, human rights watch. And then we're also looking at foundations, nonprofits, so that any of the funds that aren't covered by federal dollars or government dollars, that there can be other organizations that step in and say, well, wherever the government won't step in, we can provide that additional uh, supplement to provide any type of housing that may go above the interstate or any type of structures or parks or public spaces. Um, But James eloquently stated everything um, just as far as Richmond being a hub of black commerce, certainly being a black Wall Street of the South, especially of the country, really, Uh, with Maggie Walker, John Mitchell, other key stakeholders uh, that owned banks, but that were more so um, concerned with the empowerment of the community and the liberation of black people. And so I want to thank Catherine. I want to thank Alyssa and everybody else from Network Lobby that has been uh, very supportive of this effort and teaming up with us at Trinity to make sure that at least this small slice in Virginia which again, as James said, is a representation or an epicenter of what's happening across the country, uh, can really unfold in a way that impacts and uh, contributes to the edification and, um, and the, the, really the, the, the financial empowerment of black families that were, that were impacted. And as we can see, so there are some of the images from from the uh, from the prayer vigil where we started out. As you can see, Ebenezer Baptist Church in the background, Abner Clay Park. Uh, we have Sanaya there who spoke, a BCU student, and then other members from the community uh, who spoke out. But it's it's very very much so long overdue, and we're hoping that we can really partner in a way that uh, provides again both financial resources but land. Um, some type of land reparation to the the families that were displaced. Thank you you
3: so much, James. Thank you so much, Cliff, for grounding us in the story of Richmond, for your advocacy, and for hosting such an incredibly powerful event in Richmond. Now, I started this program by thanking our field, and rightfully so. Many of you have been deeply committed to this work. However, for those of you who may not be aware, a little background. This past spring, Jarrett Smith, who leads the work on reparations at Network on our government relations team, approached my team, the organizing team, about mobilizing our field on reparations. We recognized this was a newer issue for many folks, and so on June 1st, we did a webinar all about HR 40 and the call for a commission to study reparations. Once that groundwork was laid, we began planning our field campaign. Just two weeks later, we co-hosted a prayer vigil for reparations in Cleveland, Ohio with St. Aloysius, St. Agatha Parish. The event, which included special guest Reverend Tracy Blackman, was incredibly powerful and became a model for future events. We put together a toolkit guiding folks through the process of how to host a reparations vigil and outlining a short program, which included educational content, prayer, song, the stories of truth tellers, and a call to action. We shared this toolkit with our field and especially our network advocates teams. Advocates from across the country volunteered to host local events. Over the summer and into the fall, events were hosted in Pen New York. This event was online and actually included Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, Rochester, New York, where we gathered in person, Richmond, Virginia, once again in person, Texas, which was online, Mount Vernon, New York, and Latham, New York, both hybrid, where they were both in person and online, and in Covington, Kentucky. We are so grateful to all the advocates who responded to our call. Each of these events was a powerful opportunity to educate folks about the need for a federal reparations commission and call on them to pray and advocate for one. Speaking of which, we hope that all of you will take action. Our program is not over, please don't leave. We still have some phenomenal speakers coming up, However, as you listen to them, I hope you will think about how to incorporate their messages into your own message to the White House. Once we leave here tonight, we need all of you to email President Biden and call on him to sign an executive order establishing an HR 40 style commission on reparations. And now we're gonna hear from someone who will certainly inspire you to take action, Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis. Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, author, activist, and public theologian, is the senior minister at Middle Collegiate College, a multiracial, welcoming and inclusive congregation in New York City that is driven by love, period. She is the author of several books, including her latest, Fierce Love, A Bold Path of Ferocious Courage and Rule-Breaking Kindness That Can Heal the World. She earned her Master of Divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary and earned a Master of Philosophy and a PhD in Psychology and Religion from Drew University. Ordained in the Presbyterian Church USA, she is the first African-American and first woman senior minister in the Collegiate Church of New York, which was founded in 1628. Middle Church and Reverend Dr. Lewis have been featured in media such as The Today Show, Good Morning America, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and much more. Her podcast, Love Period, which is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, and The Four, a Fearsome Faith Force on Talking About Black Life, Love, Power, and Joy, with Otis Moss III, Lisa Sheraton Harper, and Michael Ray Matthews. Thank you for being here with us, Reverend Dr. Lewis.
8: Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, network friends. How are you, everyone? I'm Jackie. And I'm so uh, honored to be able to be in this space with you to testify to the need for uh, an executive order from President Biden to establish this. Reparations Task Force. I was in lots of meetings today and I had on my clergy gear and then I decided I was going to put on my real clergy gear. Shall I show you? Racism is the wrong way. I am so tired of living in a nation that treats white rage as a sacrament and black grief as a threat, white rage as a holy sacrament, and black grief as a threat. We are going to come up upon the second anniversary of the January 6th uh, insurrection, an outrageous display of the holy matrimony between white supremacy and Christian fascism. When that happened, we wrung our hands and we said, this is not who we are. This is not who we are. Oh, my God, this is not who we are. This is precisely who we are. It is precisely who we have been. It begins, I think, with the papal bulls that said it was okay for nice Catholics to get on boats and come across the pond to see what kind of heathens they might "Quote: discover and to take their lands. It begins with nice Anglo-Saxon Protestants wanting to flee the oppression of the monarchy but who brought inside them their own sense of superiority and landed here on these shores deciding that they could exploit the people they found here. It begins with Theologies of empire, it begins with when Constantine makes Christianity the religion of the state, the likely black Afro-Semitic Jesus, Yeshua uh, ben Joseph, who is a revolutionary, a poor itinerant preacher, handyman, moving about Galilee in Nazareth, which is now Palestine, a Judean. At once a homeless baby, at once a refugee, in order to stay alive, became commodified, commercialized, empired. And the chosenness story for the Hebrew people is interjected, stolen, ripped off. And suddenly, these white Anglo-Saxon Protestants and their counterparts, are the new chosen people, destined, designed, set apart, if you will, to Christianize the world. Thomas Jefferson, in his notes on the state of Virginia, opines beautifully about the beauty of the Aborigines, by whom he meant the indigenous people. But in that same product, and quite frankly, it's just too dark to see in here, (laughs) I won't read it, But in that same product, I'm talking about Query 14, please look it up. Jefferson says about black folks, about black folks, we seem to have less hair on our face and body. There are other physical distinctions proving a difference of race. We have, have, seem to require less sleep. We, after a hard day of labor through the day, will be induced by the slightest amusement to sit up all night and laugh. Our grief, he says, is transient. He can't imagine that black people can reason beyond a plain thought. And in the end, he opines, he advances it, therefore, as a suspicion only that the blacks, whether originally a distinct race or made distinct by time and circumstances, are inferior to the whites in endowments of both mind and body. That philosophy leaves our country and goes to Europe on the wings of Jefferson's oratory and reputation. It leads to pseudo-race science, in which skulls from the Caucasus mountains are deemed to be beautiful, and therefore the Caucasian, quote, race is higher, better than others. Y'all, please don't call white people Caucasians. You're buying into some fake science when you do. That traveled back across the pond to Philadelphia, where various physicians colluded to decide that Black people are are by design inferior. The slave trade and its 1619 beginning here in these shores is evidence of the blatant disregard that white people had for my people. We're supposed to do personal testimonies here, my people, my Black people. My mama's 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 mama enslaved in Mississippi. My father's 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 father enslaved in Mississippi. These beautiful black people who are ripped from their home and their culture, who nonetheless thrive and survive in this nation, raise beautiful black children who had to walk past the school to go to the colored school, who were denied the basic rights of food on the table and clothes on the back. My mother was four years old when she was picking cotton in Ruleville, Mississippi, on plantations with Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, who was my grandmother's friend. I see them sitting on the porch shelling peas and shucking corn, and the peas are boiling and the meat is cooking, and they're telling stories of resilience and resistance but they wake up in the morning and take their children into the fields to make $3 a day so they could live in poverty and give most of that back to the sharecropper. I'm so sick of living in a nation that treats white rage as a sacrament and black grief as a threat. White rage is why we have the Klan, because white Protestant Christianity rises up against Reconstruction and kills thousands and thousands of black people, lynches thousands and thousands of black women and children, mostly for the sin of just being black on the planet, takes their children out after church and stands on fields and have picnics and watch the people pick the Negroes apart for sport taking thumbs and fingers and ears and pickling them and leaving them in store cases. That might sound so horrible to us, but it is what happened. White rage is why a 14-year-old boy named Emmett Till goes into a store and leaves only to a few days later be viciously beaten, shot in the head, a cotton gin wrapped around his neck and thrown in the water. And that woman, Carolyn Bryant, who lied then and said that she... He had offended her, who then recanted that and said there's nothing that boy did that deserved that death, is still out somewhere eating gingerbread with her kids while this dead boy's body tills the soil in his burial place. White rage, white rage is why we had Jim Crow. White rage is why we had redlining around homes. White rage. It's why the tax code, the school codes, medicine, all of the structures in our nation are built around white rage's disdain, disdain for black people's beauty and body and joy. I'm so tired of the permanent pernicious nature of white supremacy in this nation that is now in a wicked dance with Christianity. Blessing. With Jesus' name and in the name of God, this vile hatred that is always directed to my people. A little girl uh, a few days ago was out spraying um, lantern bugs and her neighbor called the police and said, a little black woman in a hoodie is out doing something dangerous in my neighborhood. She's not dangerous. President Biden, I'm not dangerous, but until we have a task force that investigates the pernicious and permanent nature of white supremacy in this nation, I'm also not free. I'm also not safe. My Black Lives Matters, my family's Black Lives Matter, my colleagues' Black Lives Matter, and we need you, sir, to take action to once and for all put the idea of reparations on the center of our nation's agenda. Work with me to end the scourge of white supremacy in this land. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Reverend Dr. Lewis. It is always a joy to have you with us, and that was incredibly powerful. Next up, it is my privilege and honor to introduce our next speaker, Sister Anita Baird. Sister Anita is a member of the Religious Congregation of the Society of the Daughters of the Heart of Mary, having served as Regional Superior, Provincial Counselor, and most recently as United States Provincial. A trailblazer and history maker, Sister Anita became the first African American to serve as Chief of Staff to the Archbishop of Chicago in 1997. In 2000, Cardinal Francis George appointed her the founding director of the Archdiocese of Chicago's Office for Racial Justice. She is a past president of the National Black Sisters Conference and a recipient of the organization's Harriet Tubman Moses of Her People Award. Since 2000, Sister Anita has traveled the country preaching at parish revivals, directing retreats, and presenting anti-racism workshops, including a virtual address to the network community on the legacy of Black Catholic Sisters for Catholic Sisters Week last year that I encourage everyone to go and rewatch. Sister Anita it is wonderful having you with us thank you
9: Catherine it is a privilege to be with you with the network family and certainly as a black Catholic woman religious I am honored to belong to a group of women that continue to stand in the gap to speak truth to power going all the way back to Selma when they marched with Dr. King to the present day standing before the White House demanding that President Biden keeps his promise and establishes a commission uh, to study reparations. Uh, Dr. Lewis mentioned the papal bulls that were issued blessing slavery uh, by Pope Nicholas V going back to 1455. It says to me that the church needs to repent and this nation needs to repent.
10: Reparations
9: are about restorative justice period. The promissory note that Dr. King spoke about 70 years ago next year at the March on Washington is still in default. The bad check continues to bounce. Reparations are not about a handout, but about America fulfilling her promise of life, liberty and the pursuit of justice for all. And until this injustice is acknowledged and rectified, there can be no healing and no moving forward. In order for the American dream to become an equitable reality, it demands that the United States of America restore to black Americans that deferred wealth that is due us. Reparations will provide wealth building opportunities that address racial disparities in housing, education, and entrepreneurship. We can never, ever forget that slavery enriched slave owners and their descendants down to the present day, fueling our country's economic engine while suppressing or totally denying the ability to build wealth to the descendants of the enslaved. Slavery and Jim Crow laws, redlining, and other discriminatory policies, including the criminal justice system, and lack of quality education have put Black Americans at a disadvantage in building wealth. Disparities in access to healthcare, along with inequities in economic policies, combined to make Black people more vulnerable to negative repercussions. Those who can draw upon equity in home ownership, savings and investments are able to recover much faster from economic downturns as we are experiencing at present. The case for reparations, however, is more than financial. It is a moral issue. It is a right-to-life issue. Our nation has yet to atone for this sin of slavery. We are still waiting for the 40 acres and a mule. At the end of the Civil War, when General Sherman signed an order allocating four hundred thousand acres of confiscated confederate land to black families yet after the assassination of president lincoln andrew johnson reversed the order and returned the land to former slave owners and some were actually paid reparations for for their lost wealth the slaves that they had owned in the 20th century black americans were prohibited from equal access to both the GI Bill and Social Security benefits. I had six uncles who served and fought in World War II, and not one was able to benefit from the GI Bill, which allowed veterans to secure a college education or from getting a VA loan to purchase a home, thereby creating the middle class. When Social Security went into effect, domestic and foreign laborers, the majority who were Black, were exempt from qualifying to receive benefits. We all know about redlining laws and restrictive covenants that have kept Black Americans from the one sure means of building wealth, and that is home ownership. And the list could go on and on. We have waited long enough. Now is the time. The promissory note is long overdue. It's time to set the record straight. It's time to pay reparations to the descendants of the enslaved Africans. As the great poet Langston Hughes cautions us in his famous poem, A Raisin in the Sun, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode we have waited long enough the biden administration must uphold its promise to african americans it must keep its promise to act now to correct this festering injustice once and for all by issuing an executive order to establish a national reparations commission to study this issue. It is a matter of justice. It is a matter of life. Now is the time. Now is the day for reparations. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much, Sister Anita. That was very compelling, inspiring. Um, You've given us a lot to think about. Next up, we are joined by Rabbi Arya Bernstein. Rabbi Bernstein has written and taught extensively about the case for slavery reparations in Torah and rabbinic literature, including the 2018 article, The Torah Case for Reparations. Rabbi Bernstein is a fifth-generation Chicago Southsider who works as a National Jewish Educator for Abadah, an Educational Consultant for the Jewish Council on Urban Affairs. He is a senior editor of Jewschool.com and a member of the Zedek Lab. Rabbi Bernstein studied at several institutions of higher rabbinical studies and was ordained by Rabbi Daniel Landes, Yashra Institute. Rabbi Bernstein, thank you so much for joining us tonight.
10: Thank you for having me. I join you in solidarity of spirit and scripture with my siblings and Catholic and other communities. It's an honor to be here. <clears throat> I'm coming to represent a Torah tradition, and one of the The upshots of that to President Biden is that contrary to the trolling of the popular American imagination, that reparations are a radical, outlandish, out-there idea, representing the ancient, continuing, eternal, and contemporary Torah and rabbinic tradition, I come here as a Jewish person saying that in our tradition, reparations are not radical, they're not out there. In fact, they're the most normal, most legally obvious, and in fact, foundational piece of our most central mythic story. Let's review our scriptures. The first time that the central story that becomes to be identified as the, the identity-forming story of the Jewish people, liberation from slavery by God from a tyrannical enslaver. The very first time we find out in the Torah that slavery is going to happen, in Genesis chapter 15, God speaks to Abraham, in the covenant between the pieces. Here's the deal. Know for sure that your seed will be an alien in a land not their own and shall serve them, and and they shall abuse them 400 years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterward, they shall come out with significant property. Abraham had not been nervous about wealth. He was already wealthy. God tells him things are going to get rough, your descendants are going to be enslaved, and they're going to be liberated, and they're going to come out with significant property. Years later, hundreds of years of slavery later in Exodus chapter 3, Moses at the burning bush, God is pressing on Moses and the importance for him to go back and play his part in participating in the liberation of his, his community. And God says, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that when you go, you will not go empty. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and of the one lodging in her house, silver and gold items and gold items and clothing. And you shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and you shall clean out the Egyptians. When Moses has promised that despite all the hardships, liberation is going to happen, the most detail in describing the liberation is the detail of reparations, Exodus chapter 3. Eight chapters and nine plagues later, Exodus chapter 11. It's on the eve of the plague of the firstborn. Egypt is in free fall. The economy has collapsed through the nine crippling plagues. And God says to Moses, one more plague will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, and afterwards he will send you out of here. And when he sends you, he will completely expel you. Speak, please, in the ears of the people, that they ask, each man of his neighbor and each woman of her neighbor, silver items and gold items. And Adonai, God, the Lord, gave the people favor in the light in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, in the sight of the people. On the eve of the liberation, God, reducing God's self to plead with human beings and saying, do not forget to take liberation to take reparations. And finally, in the description, Exodus chapter 12, and it happened at midnight, Adonai smote every firstborn in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh rose up and he called and said, get out, get up from among the people. Serve Adonai, as you have said, take everything. And the Egyptians urged the people on, sending them out, saying, we'll all be dead. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses. And they asked of the Egyptians, silver items and gold items and clothing. And Adonai, the Lord, gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have what they asked. They cleaned out the Egyptians. As a Jewish community, we always have, and we continue to live through a Torah that insists that we must support reparations because we took reparations for our slave labor. We were commanded by God to do so, and we were promised these reparations in the earliest divine plan for our liberation, that there is no liberation without reparations. God will even plead with human beings to make sure that they take what is rightfully theirs. This has legal echo In Deuteronomy chapter 15, the passage that Tanahazi Coates wrote as a precede to his magnum opus article, that in the regular economy, not chattel slavery, in economies of poverty and wealth and potential exploitation, if somebody is paying off a debt with labor, the book of Deuteronomy refers back to the Exodus passages and says when you send somebody who who is paying off debt with labor... First of all, there's a time limit on it. And when you send them free, do not send them empty. Chapter 15, furnish them liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor. And remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt. And Adonai, your God, redeemed you. And our most prominent medieval commentator, Rashi, makes sure that we don't miss the point. Why does God say, remember, you are a slave? What's being described here is as child slavery? Remember you were a slave and I furnished you, I God furnished you and gave to you from the spoils of Egypt. So too you must furnish and give to your departing indentured employee twice over. The rabbinic tradition is emphatic. Lest you think, well, these don't sound a lot like reparations, sounds like a money grab. Ideally, the Egyptian government would have repented and created an H.R. 40 and a reparations committee. They weren't going to do that. And so God validates his reparations by any means necessary, the liberated people taking what is rightfully theirs. There's a piquant story in the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Sanhedrin, that imagines an international lawsuit in the court of the Alexander the Great, sort of the Talmudic equivalent of the Hague today, a legal court that has jurisdiction both over the Jewish people, and the Egyptian people. The Egyptians come and sue the Jewish people in Alexander the Great's court and says, hey, when our ancestors, quoting Exodus twelve thirty-six, uh, gave all that property to you, it was a loan. Give us the silver and gold that you took from us. It reminds us of the ways in which the, the American government actually gave reparations to enslavers for their so-called lost property. The rabbinic response is to Sue and to say, from where do you bring the evidence from the Egyptians, say, from the Torah? So they say, well, I'm going to bring evidence from the Torah as well, four verses later. And the Israelites' residence, which they resided in Egypt, was 430 years, Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. Give us payment for the labor of 600,000 whom you enslaved in Egypt for all those years. Mic drop. Alexander the Great gives the Egyptian lawyers time to give an answer, and they don't show up again, and that's the happy ending of the story. The idea being, reparations are so fundamental, foundational, and obvious to liberation. The enslavers were lucky that they got got off with giving only what they, with losing only what was taken to them. If you want to really pull out your pens and papers and calculate what was taken on the way out liberation against what was owed, the Egyptians were lucky and they would probably owe even more. It's been heartening to see um, so many, uh, over the last several years, so many people, civilians in our country as well as members of Congress come around um, to supporting HR 40 and the case for reparations, including presidential candidate Joe Biden just two years ago. That was very heartening. And it is time today, today, for President Joe Biden to agree with candidate Joe Biden and to follow the campaign promise. As a man of faith, I believe that he's a person who believes that lying is bad and keeping your word is good. Reparations are not some harebrained out there idea. They're the most obvious thing. They are a part of the mythic scriptural tradition of the liberation of slaves from Egypt. There is no liberation without reparations. President Biden signed the executive order today. Thank you.
3: Yes, thank you. And thank you, Rabbi Bernstein. We are so glad you were able to join us today. Next up, we have our next truth teller. I'm honored to introduce Maria Smith. Maria lives in Cleveland, Ohio, blocks away from where police killed Tamir Rice. She is a 1980 graduate of the University of Missouri and a 1983 graduate of the University of Virginia Law School. She considers two adult postgraduate experiences as formative in understanding the violence of racism, working for the Witness for Peace in Nicaragua during the Contra War and living in a favela in Jacifi in Brazil. Her work as a lawyer includes representing clients who are victims of mass incarceration and civil matters, by attempting to remove the collateral consequences of criminal conviction that create barriers to housing and represents clients who, as a legacy of redlining and predatory lending, are dealing with the affordable rental housing crisis. In dealing with both issues, she seeks to frame housing as a human right. Maria, we are so grateful to have you with us.
11: Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, everyone, for your powerful witnesses this evening. My talk involves three points. The points um, are intended to address some of the criticisms and questions often articulated in opposition to reparations. The first point I use the word to refer to is quotidian racism. It will involve a story about my mother's childhood in rural Missouri. The second point involves how that story reveals resources that can address questions of documenting family histories and the reparations that they would be entitled to. The third point involves a framework in which we can view reparations. We are learning and relearning the horrific stories of massacres of black communities, such as Tulsa, Oklahoma, Elaine, Arkansas, East Cleveland, East St. Louis and in 1917, and the Rosewood massacres and more. We are learning and documenting lynching In Missouri, from 1877 to 1950, Missouri had more lynchings than any other state outside the Deep South. These are horrific and traumatic accounts of the brutality of racism. Tonight, my account, however, is about what I mentioned, quotidian racism. I use that to to talk about the day-to-day grinding, air we breathe racism Insidious because it robs children of their confidence and love of self, as revealed in Mamie Foote's Clark, The Doll Test, internalized racism that lives like a virus in the structures and culture and desensitizes us to the actual physical violence that racism ultimately perpetuates. So here's the brief story. You've experienced, have you experienced the death of a loved one like your mother, especially your mother? The first heartbeat we hear in our lives was our mother's. What do we feel when that heart stops? February 29, 1940 is the day my mother and my aunt lost their mother. They were 13 and 12 years old. For them, it was the coldest, grayest day imaginable. For the United States, February 29, 1940 was the day Hattie McDaniels became the first Black person to receive an Academy Award for her performance in Gone with the Wind, the blockbuster movie that the NAACP feared would fuel a positive perception of the Ku Klux Klan and more derogatory stereotypes of African Americans. Gone with the Wind was the polemic of its day. My mother and aunt, born in Harrisonville, Missouri, along with cousins and neighbors, attended the Prince Whipple School. Prince Whipple School was a one-room schoolhouse for black children. It was named after an African who was enslaved to Captain William Whipple during the Revolutionary War. Prince Whipple is depicted in Immanuel Gottlieb Lutz's painting of Washington crossing the Delaware. For me, the name reflects a reminder of how Africans contributed to the very founding of this nation. Prince Whipple School had two teachers, Mr. and Mrs. Green who taught all children up to the eighth grade. The entrance of Prince Whipple School had a portrait of Carter Woodson, the thought leader on race theory, a founder of the Black History Month. I consider Carter Woodson to be the Cornell, I consider Cornell West to be the Carter Woodson of our time. I imagine my mother's humble one room school education imbued with Rachel pride contrary to the stereotype of one-room school education that I had held for many years. The children who graduated from Prince Whipple School could not attend high school in Harrisonville. Harrisonville had a high school, but it was only for white students. Prince Whipple grads, black children, had to either forego a high school education or travel to Kansas City to attend an all-black high school there. When my mother was ready for high school, my grandfather and other black men tried to organize a school bus that would take black children to Kansas City to high school. The white merchants would not permit it. As a result, my mother, a motherless child, found herself shipped off 1,192 miles from Harrisonville to Scottsdale, Arizona. There she was to work in a laundry during the day and attend high school at night. Having suffered the death of her mother and missing her dear sister, Helen, it was too much for her to, it was too much for her. She returned to Harrisonville. She never completed high school. The second point, when I was in eighth grade, my mother surprised me with a trip on a Greyhound bus. We lived in Jefferson City, Missouri. I was attending, ironically, an all-white Catholic grade school. I was the only black student. She had converted to Roman Catholicism and sent me to Immaculate Conception Elementary School. My mother, my brother, who was six years older than I, refused to attend school there. She capitulated and allowed him to go to Lincoln Laboratory School, an all-black elementary school and high school. Anyway, my mother and I took a safe trip to meet two people. As far as I could recall, she had never mentioned them, Mr. and Mrs. Green the teachers at Prince Whipple School. I felt as if I were on display. Here I was in the eighth grade. My mother was so proud and I was so clueless why. I had no awareness that her mother had died when she was my age. I had no idea why Mr. and Mrs. Green did not seem to be old enough to have been my mother's teachers. They looked the same age as my mother. They were, in fact, only a few years older. I really did not think about the visit again until my son graduated from Amherst College. Here he had one of the most elite educations one could receive in the United States, such a contrast from my mother's. I decided I would visit Harrisonville with him and explore. That opportunity did not come until 2015. We went to Harrisonville, curious about my mother's childhood and the one-room schoolhouse. My husband, Charlie, our son, Alexander, and my Aunt Helen took the road trip to Harrisonville. My mother did not want to go. All information, including the portrait of Carter Woodson, the whereabouts of Prince Whipple School, the plaque, the news articles that reported my grandmother's death, including that they sang Precious Lord at her funeral, I received at the Cass County Historical Society in 2015. I left with greater curiosity based on one comment, as the staff of the historical society pulled out information on the principal school, census reports, news articles about other family members, another staff person offered that if we had time, should we go into the basement and retrieve probate records to see when my people were included as slaves in probate inventories. There are plenty of documents available for family histories. There are plenty of resources available to us now To repair the broken relationships. Point number three. Reparations for me are part of a framework, a practice, a discipline that helps me not to be depressed about the past oppression and the dangers lurking today. The framework is one the Cleveland Nonviolence Network used as scaffolding in the People's Justice and Peace Convention in 2016. The convention was held in the tradition of the Women's Convention in Seneca Falls in 1848, which Frederick Douglass attended, and the Women's Rights Convention on May 29th, 1851 in Akron, Ohio, in which Sojourner Truth asked, ain't I a woman? The framework provides five practices of nonviolence, radical amazement, radical hospitality, good stewardship to create shared abundance, compassion for every sentient being in ecosystem, and most importantly, truth, reparations, and reconciliation. I urge President Biden and his administration to form a federal commission on reparations. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much, Maria, for sharing your story, your family's story, and so much more with us. I'm so grateful you were able to be here. Now, we had hoped that Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee would be able to join us. Unfortunately, she had a last-minute change in her schedule and won't be able to make it. However, we remain immensely grateful for her tireless advocacy and leadership in this movement. And so now, to close us out, I'd like to welcome back Sister Anita to lead our closing prayer.
4: Thank
9: you, Catherine. This prayer uh, is adapted from the prayer of apology by Emily Walker-Grodetta and a prayer of thanksgiving by Dr. Kelly Brown-Douglas let us pray. God of truth and justice, we acknowledge the enduring presence of racism in the origins of this nation, in our institutions and politics, in our faith traditions, and in our hearts. Some of us are much too familiar with racism's many violent aggressions and everyday microaggressions. Others have at times chosen the false comfort of ignorance and privilege over the cost. And freedom of truth. We stand before you acknowledging our guilt and the harm it has caused your children of African descent. We repent for the many ways social, economic, and political that white supremacy has accrued benefits to some at the expense of others. We repent for the many ways that racist ideology has flowed into our hearts and has corrupted our spirits. Grant us, loving God, forgiveness for our complicity with white supremacy and greed that gave birth to chattel slavery and continues its legacy even to this day. Grant us liberating God the oral wisdom, moral leadership, and courage to continue the work of freedom until our world and society becomes a place free from the sins of white supremacy, anti-blackness, and all other isms that would betray the justice that you desire for all of your children. May our nation and its people be made whole through your call for reparative justice for the descendants of the enslaved. We make this prayer in faith and let the people of God say amen.
3: Amen. Thank you so much, Sister Anita. It is my hope that you all found our time together at this event, educational and motivating thank you to all of our amazing speakers and a special shout out to all of my colleagues who braved the cold at the white house with our letter this evening as i shared with you before the biden administration needs to hear from every single one of you on this program tonight please use the link in the comments to visit network's website and submit a personalized email to the biden administration calling on President Biden to sign an executive order establishing an HR 40 style commission on reparations. We will also be sure to include the link to this in our follow up email. Once you have taken action, I encourage you to amplify your effort by talking with a couple of your friends about this important topic, maybe posting on your social media and encouraging others to take action as well. Your advocacy and support are greatly appreciated And necessary if we're going to turn this vision into a reality thank you all for your commitment to justice i hope you all have a great night
12: hello everyone welcome 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 i know that folks are arriving and that folks will continue to be arriving uh we're going to start because we've made this time to be together and we want to be able to inhabit that time as best we can. I'm so delighted to see everyone. This is our third reparations learning people session and it, it just feels thrilling to be together and to see how many people have made time in their day and time in their lives to explore the work of repair and reparation together. While we're settling in, uh, an invitation, if you would like, to introduce yourself a bit in the chat, maybe say a bit about who you are and what draws you here today. Um, Nothing you have to do, but it's always lovely to see the different folks who are with us in the chat. And we are recording. We are using the recording so that folks who can't be here can listen to the sessions in other ways. And if there's ever a point where we're talking about something that you know you don't want to be recorded, let us know and we'll figure out a way to make sure that you that um, we're able to respect each other's privacy. Um, we'll do. Jessica and I will introduce ourselves briefly. We'll talk about what we're going to do today, but Jessica, did you want to tell people about getting ready for some reflection time?
13: Absolutely. So we um, are going to do our best to have some reflection time during our session today. If you are a person who likes to jot notes to yourself, now is a great time to grab a pencil and paper or if there's any other um, fidget toy is what popped into my head because that's what my child would do. Um, any other tool that you would like during reflection time, go ahead and grab that now.
12: Markers, crayons, just a place yeah. to sit by yourself, whatever might work for you. And it's going to be a brief reflection time. but um, And we, we reserve the right to change whether there's reflection time, depending on how our questions and discussion go but it it is our aspiration. So to jump in together, I feel like, oh my gosh, it's just, I'm watching folks coming on Zoom and I'm like, so many people have made time for this today and to be together. Uh, My name is Liz Loeb, I use she and her pronouns. I'm here on Dakota land in my home in Northeast Minneapolis where I live with my spouse, Sarah and our dog Chloe and our eight month old kiddo Lyra who is sleeping down the hall. I'm the Associate Director of Minnesota Interfaith Power and Light, MNIPL. Uh, MNIPL works with communities of faith, conscience and spiritual practice at the intersection of climate justice and racial justice. And I could tell you a bunch more about me, but I actually wanna make sure that we have time to talk with one another in deeper ways. So always glad to answer questions about who I am and what I'm doing here. And some of that will actually come through in how we talk to each other and leave this session today. Jessica. Hi everyone, my name is Jessica
13: Intermill. I also use she, her pronouns and am also on Dakota land very near the uh, Dakota origin place of the Dote. I am a lawyer by training, um, land history consultant by new and exciting interests, and work with MNITL as a strategic policy consultant, um, working to further the work of reparations particularly in white settler colonizer communities. Um, I am here with my elderly dachshund, whom you might hear snoring. Um, Yeah, that's me today.
12: That's fantastic, Jessica. Do you want to guide us through what we'll be doing today, by chance?
13: I will do that while I'm also going to try to watch are, are you able to admit people if they come in?
12: I, I theoretically yes.
13: Cool. Cool. Will it show up
12: in it'll show up in my participant list, right? I think
13: so. Up at the top.
12: Okay, yes. Let's say yes. All
13: right, we're gonna go for that. Um, so today we are going to briefly re- revisit briefly revisit a little bit of the content from last session. And then also reflect today on how faith and spirituality and faith traditions can connect to this work. Um, We're going to specifically explore how communities of faith and conscience and spiritual practice, um, how they can have a meaningful role in this work as organizations. I'm going to pause and see, Liz, if you're able to admit Crystal, because if you can't see her, I'm going to keep multitasking.
12: I can't see her, so you get to multitask. All right, here we go.
13: Good times. Um, So just as a quick recap, um, last week or last session, we introduced the idea of stacked time, how now is always, and how the past and the future are here today. We also connected the reparations movement to uh, the movement for climate change and specifically talked about how we cannot meaningfully address climate change without changing our orientation to land and resource ownership. And to make that shift, um, one of the really important ways to do that is engaging in the healing and repair of, um, of reparations.
14: I just lost my
13: notes. That's fun.
12: Um, Jessica, we're, we're viewing um, something. I see Alan's
13: screen. Alan, um, can you... Uh. Can
12: I unshare
13: <laughs> Alan's screen? There's all I parts.
12: love Zoom, y'all.
15: I know, right? <laughs> Alan, are you
12: able to hear us
13: and come off of a screen share?
12: Are we able to unshare him through the participant That's function? That's what I'm
13: trying to do. Yeah. Um, I'm going to share this and then oh, funny. I can unshare now. Our apologies, y'all. Stop sharing. Okay. Does that get us back?
12: We did it. Amazing.
13: All right. And uh, (laughs) we've got people in. Excellent. Um, (laughs) So as a follow-up to a conversation, we're going to start with a little bit of leftovers because lunch. Um, uh, Follow-up, we've had a a couple of email conversations offline um, around a question that came up last time when we introduced the eco-map, and you'll recall the eco-map, and I actually I'm going to try to screen share an actual screen share here. The eco-map is that five-circle overlap of um, truth-telling, spiritual practice, relationship, political solidarity, and wealth return. And we would have some questions about, um, okay, but that idea of spiritual practice as a label for the circle, how do folks feel about that? Um, We talked about it a bit in, I believe it was session one, and then I've had some um, follow-up emails um, since then. And we wanted to, Liz and I wanted to come back to you and talk about what our thinking is in continuing to call it the spiritual practice circle um, and explain both our conclusion and our reasoning. MNIPL is not a religious organization, but our role is to organize within faith communities. And so we, when we developed this language for the Ecomap and when um, an interfaith group, March, um, multi... Okay, can you do it, Liz? Okay, March
12: is multi-faith, anti-racism, change and healing. Thank you. March, we march.
13: I always try to start with... Whether
12: in body or in spirit. (laughs) (laughs)
13: Um, It it is a group of multi-faith clergy, um, and me and Liz. To, who created the, um, the map framework. So it comes from a faith perspective. Um, and we want to use this language in partnership with clergy in this context because that's really the purpose that we developed the tool for. Now, and also, we understand that religious organizations have perpetrated harm, including to some people who are on this call right now and to some people that you'll be sharing this with. Um, so we recognize that spiritual practices as a, as a label can be tough for some people. It won't be right for everyone. And that's OK. We love you and support you and want you to take this tool and make it your own. And so if it helps to, to you to so sort of reframe that in your head, as I admit it did for me for a bit, um, Absolutely do that. Um, and if that, if, you, if it doesn't, you, you know, it just doesn't square for you, that's okay, too. This might not be the space for you, but Liz and I are happy to talk with you offline to find a space that does work for you and is affirming for you and loving for you. So that's the little bit of leftovers from last time. Um, are there any other um, questions or observations that people have from the last time? And Deborah, I see your question. I'm going to have to talk with the March table about that because we have some questions about editing it, and we're just sort of working that out as we go. And the question, by the way, for people who are going to uh, hear this recording later and not see Deborah's question is: Is there a way? Is there an editable map, EcoMap?
12: And I think in part because this is a tool created by a group of people out of a context, it might be that we are not giving permission for people to edit it, but we are always supportive of people creating their own tools, giving credit in a thoughtful way with integrity to where it came from to, I mean, this is about us evolving collectively and as a community, but we we have to talk with the folks who created the tool about what our different permissions are. Exactly. Mary. You I see a- Mary, Yeah.
2: Um can you please put up that eco map again just so that I can get this the five you know sections down. what I will
13: do is attach it to our um uh attach the graphic to our email afterwards so that you have that and can see that and can can focus on the the presentation today knowing that that is on its way
14: okay thank you
13: absolutely so From there, we're going to pivot and continue to talk a lot about faith today Um, and to set just a little bit of context when we um, Okay, I am going to share that map again.
12: Can I I jump in, Jessica? Actually, because I realize we're using the word faith, and we're using it as a shorthand for any range of things that are being grounded in tradition, in practice, in community. So, as, so some of my identities that I bring to this are that I am white, I am Jewish, I'm queer, and my relationship to Judaism has not been a particularly religious one. It's about connection to ancestry and a collective people, even though sometimes I engage in what might be understood as religious practices. But the, the frame of faith, to me, is actually not a frame that I've encountered within my Jewish experience or even in my Jewish religious observance because the question from my Jewish experience isn't about what I believe, it isn't about faith. It's about how I act as part of a people and how I observe ritual in community. And for me, and I know that there are a lot of world traditions that might use the word faith, but I've encountered it as a particularly Christian fame, frame, fame, (laughs) a particularly Christian frame about what it means to engage in spiritual practice and tradition. So I'm noticing that if I have a reaction to the word faith, that that it might be, that there might be others and it might be helpful to unpack. But we really are, there are times when a shorthand helps us move through something, but we also need to be responsible and aware when using a shorthand brings us back into a set of norms that are based on one particular uh tradition and, 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 and in one particular tradition's dominance or hegemony. I know that's a big word that we could talk about for a long time. No, thank there's you. a lot of concepts that I just embedded in that. Jessica, do you want to say anything else or do we want to try to unpack that together a little bit?
13: You know, I, no, I think it's super helpful to say out loud that very often space um, in the United States is a Christian frame. Um, and w- the offering that I want to bring is, that because I, I have a very similar experience of, um, I consider myself culturally Jewish, um, but for a very long time did not consider myself spiritually Jewish. Um, that's shifting a little bit now, but when I first encountered the Ecomap, when I looked at the spiritual practices piece, um, I joke that what I mostly believe in is the force in like a Star Wars
12: way. May it be with you.
13: Right. Um, and so like that's how I reframed it in my head for quite a while. And, and just sort of the idea of um, how people relate to one another in a healthy way and what traditions inform that from my own life. And that's now just starting to broaden out into Judaism as well. But so I offer that as an example of like how when we talk spiritual practices and I have, I'm definitely using faith as a shorthand there. Um, it can be much bigger than the boxes that we usually see on the census form, right? On, on, the, on the check the box. So with that, um, we're we're going to bring the context that we are going to ask you to borrow. Um, from your own traditions, from your own experience around spiritual practices, because, and here's where I'm gonna put that eco map back up, especially after we're moving through truth telling, which can be really tough, right? Truth telling has a lot of hard, hard um, concepts and ideas and history. It can be really easy to feel the urge to want to walk away from your own traditions and say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. That feels bad. Instead, I'm going to just, like, turn around and go another way. Um, We're going to ask you not to do that. Pulling in other people's traditions and, and stepping into their cultural meaning can be appropriative and harmful unless you're invited to. Um, and this, this is where I start talking about smudging. Um, smudging is something that's come up a lot uh, around, um, you have white folks who are like, boy, I really want to find something new. Um, I'll go find some sage and smudge. If you're not, in, and, and I should say, the last time I told a group of people not to smudge, the very next day I went to an event where a Native leader invited everyone to smudge. So the asterisk is always, if you are invited in, absolutely participate. And the pro tips, and Liz, I'm going to ask you to put these in the chat so I don't forget. Um, When you are smudging, if you are invited to do this, um, this, what is happening is um, someone is burning sage and sometimes cedar or other, um, other materials. You'll be invited to sort of scoop the smoke and put it over you. Um, sometimes people will focus on where they want the, the, the vibes, the spiritual pieces to go. So if you are going to be working with your hands, some people, thank you for that, Meg, where you want the medicine to go. Um, if you're going to be working with your hands, you might focus there. If you want to be listening, you might focus here. Um, basically, covering whatever pieces you want to invite, whatever places in your body you want to invite the medicine in. You should also remove any glasses or metal um, because the medicine can't reach you if that's there. So if I was going to smudge, I would take off my glasses, just hang them right on my shirt, take off my earrings, put them in a pocket, um, and then be ready to go. The other thing to know is that very often smudging will happen in a circle, and there might be other um, ceremony or medicine that might happen in a circle. If you find that, when you enter the circle and when you exit – You want to go clockwise. And so, ooh, good question. Judy has asked about whether people should take out hearing aids. I don't know. If there is anyone in the chat who can answer Judy, that would be wonderful. Um, But when you enter and exit, you go clockwise so that you're not going backwards and, and undoing and stepping on the medicine. I offer these pro tips because you might be joining us on February 15th. And there might be circles there and there might be smudging. I'm not actually sure, but um, I know that it can be empowering to know how and how the etiquette goes, so I wanted to make sure we covered that. So when we come back to reparations work, though, and we're asking you to ground in your own culture and tradition, um, Liz and I both want to share some some offerings around what that might look like. Um, so, for example... I am today wearing my talus that I created myself. This is um, sometimes known as a prayer shawl in English. Um, It has, this is really hard to do, one in the background. There we go. You can see the fringes on the end. And what I've done here is I have um, created this talus and reimagined it myself. There's often stripes at the bottom, but what I've done is added on ancestors names and my own lineage. And so you can see that Um, I'm bringing in some elements of the tradition, but also making it my own because this is actually one of the times that I started looking at, well, how can I shift and bring in the traditions into my own experience that has not been always positive with Judaism? And so by deciding, by bringing them into a very traditional garment, but bringing in my own ancestors, both Jewish and not, I was able to adapt that to Um, a piece of very tangible clothing that can ground me when I'm doing certain work. Liz, what sort of, what, what does this bring for you?
12: You know, before I give an example, I actually want to not lose a question in the chat, which is from Karen. And thank you, Karen, so much for offering this. It's what about using native songs or spirituals from the black experience in our worship services? And I think, My response to that would be, unless there are Black and Native people who are hoping to craft the worship service, and unless those folks have said it feels right and appropriate to use this music, I would would refrain from using it. Mm -hmm. There might be situations where you have explicit permission. There might be situations where you're in a relationship and somebody uses a song and you say, are there ways that I can use that song that would feel right? And the person says, yes, absolutely. Use this song and this other. So the asterisk is always permission and relationships. But absent that, I would encourage people who are not Black and Native to not draw on Native songs or Black spirituals for worship that isn't designed by and for Black or Native people.
13: Any additions to that question? I agree, and um, one of the things... Oh, that, I love
12: the and. Yes, and.
13: What I've also seen as a potential middle ground is that if it is... It has become important to your tradition to use a particular spiritual or uh, indigenous song to pay royalties. So um, find a place where you can compensate that artist um, or that community um, from which the art came. That's so
12: helpful, Jessica. You know, I, I realize in offering my own personal example, I had this whole thing prepared to say about what it means to be people of diaspora and to know that you're on somebody else's land and the healing in my own ancestral lines around my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. So what it means to to ha- have been in a place that wasn't yours, to have had to leave that place, to be in another place that is not yours, to know that you are on the land of a different indigenous people. And then I realized like just just has this beautiful concrete thing which is her tallest right that she has beaded and i'm just like wow ah! and it's like i actually need to go do some reflection about where are those tangible points in my life because i feel so a part of jewish ritual in so many ways but i wanted to actually do some of the thinking and reflection and reflect reflection that jessica just offered so i'll come back to you when i have more to say oh
13: awesome um So we, I think really the the, the grounding that we want to offer you here is that when you understand your own cultural context and you can root and find nourishment and wisdom in that heritage, that is a very authentic strength that can carry you through some really tough learning, right? Um, But the other thing that is like oh my gosh, this is amazing, as you start digging in, is that you will see that there are also reparations practices in just about every tradition. Um, Because it turns out people have been hurting each other for a while. And so we have traditions around repair, around uh, return, sometimes specifically about wealth return. And that can surround you in this and comfort you in this understanding that like reparations is not a thing that like just got cool or just showed up and now we're paying attention. This is a thing that's been there for a really long time and we're rediscovering it and bubbling it up back to the surface so that we can be part of a tradition that's been here for a really long time. And we do have traditions. This is something that white supremacy takes from us is it becomes so ubiquitous that, you know, we've got this melting pot, and everybody's the same now, and maybe it's more like ranch dressing that covers a a tossed salad, and there's a lot of whiteness that you see, and you don't see there's a tomato there anymore. But when we can look specifically through that, we can see things like lament. Now, lament is a, a Christian concept. The prayer expressing sorrow, expressing pain, expressing confusion. Um, It's been displaced by the prosperity gospel that teaches us that God just wants us to be happy and feel good. We don't talk about bad things. Why are we talking about bad things? That hurts, right? So we have, like, ideas like the power of positive thinking and um, fake it till you make it. And those are things that as we have, as our culture has shifted there and we've moved away from lament, we we really lost some of the pieces that are authentic to Christianity. So things like in the Gospel of Mark, the blind beggar says, Jesus, son of David, have pity on me, right? Because sometimes things don't go well. And sometimes we need to say, ouch, God, that hurts. Or ouch, universe this sucks. And saying it out loud can be a very physical, body embodied way to reconnect to the whole of the universe and to the whole of history. Um, Christianity also has the story of Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus uh, is a story in Luke where you've got a guy who makes a real good living collecting unjust taxes. And Jesus comes to town And looks around, and he's like, hmm, how are you doing? And everybody in town is like, that dude's a sinner. We don't like him. We don't like what he does to us. Yes, it's legal, but it's unjust. Also, Jessica's retelling of Bible stories are always fun. Um, So Zacchaeus, he says, you know what? You're right, Jesus. Jesus. I need to repent. I need to return wealth. And he actually, Zacchaeus offers two measures of repair. Um, the first, the return of ill-gotten gains. Says, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. So all of that that inheritance that I had, the the, um, the income that I received from collecting unjust, unjust taxes, I give half of it away. And he continues. If I have cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay that back four times the amount. So where I have taken something unlawfully, I have to pay a penalty on that. Now, how we translate that today, there, you know, everybody gets to make their own decision, right? Is it four times? Is it eight times? Is it two times? But the idea is that it's been there the whole time. We just have to look for it. Liz, what other traditions should we pull from?
12: Well, I think the purpose of this section is to show that in various traditions, there are these the seeds and support for thinking about our own practice of reparations. So when, when I sit down with my household budget and we talk about how we're going to move our household resources towards a material return of wealth that was taken, I think about the Shemitah year in Jewish tradition which is so every seven days we observe Shabbat. Um, it's a cornerstone of Jewish practice. It is also a time in which you cease economic relationships. You don't spend money. You don't employ workers. You don't exploit labor. You don't take from the land during Shabbat. And then once every seven years for an entire year, we as Jews are commanded to release the land. It means as an agricultural people who once had a land that we were um, that we were part of, it meant you do not harvest, you do not plow, you do not sow, you do not till, and that all, um, all, any taking or making from the land is fully released so that the land can um, be in its own cycle without, without much more to say. Just pretend I had an ellipsis there that trailed off, right? Because I'm like, I could talk to you for half an hour about Shemitah. Uh, But here's the amazing thing. Then every seven of seven. Every 49 years is a Jubilee year and all debts are canceled. All wealth is returned. There can be no economic system which in this observance of the Jewish calendar in which wealth is held for more than 49 years. Um, also, any indentures, any commitments of labor are released. Um, and that's grounded in first the release of the land and then the release of economic um, of 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 ownership, it's it's a, I'll use a different term, it's a way of undoing ownership in interdependent and communal relations. Now how it actually played out in practice, I'm sure was often a mess, right? Actual humans doing this is not clear or easy. But when I think about what money to return, the money I hold that was stolen that needs to be returned, I think about who told me that I owned things, where did I learn to own and keep things? And what does it mean to see all things as, as having a cycle in which they are returned? And so that's what I draw on from my tradition when I think about reparations. There's also just to offer another world tradition um, that may, might, there might be practitioners in this room and there might not be is, all right? It's a complicated thing to say I am a white person who has trained deeply in the tradition of yoga but I am a white person who has trained deeply in the tradition of yoga and who, and and I I practice yoga, I teach meditation, I've I've spent 30 years of my life kind of immersed in this tradition and I'm struggling with what it means to hold parts of that as somebody who comes as a queer Jewish person from the US, right? And I should struggle with that. But there's a concept, so yoga is a complex system of multiple traditions that we often weave together under this one word that refers to strains of all sorts of religious and spiritual practices that mostly come from the place we call India. And one of the bedrock texts is Patanjali's Sutras. In those sutras, there's laid out an eight-limbed path. In that eight-limbed path, the first limb are the yamas and niyamas. Yamas are ethical responsibilities or obligations to a right life. And the last yama, I'm so glad you're all still with me, is called aparigraha, and it means non-grasping. And it is the principle, then the reason it comes first, the yamas come first, is that you cannot work through meditation or towards connection with the universe or towards the oneness and presence of all things if you haven't first figured out an ethical set of practices for living in the world. And so aparigraha grounds those ethical practices, the yamas, um, your obligations, in that to hold or to grasp or to own is inherently not in right relationship with oneness, oneness presence of the universe. And I'm like, that's a powerful statement. Like if we really did a parigraha, that would, that would mean a transformation of the way we do life. And so I just offer that as a, as a sprinkling, as a sparkling of ways that we can learn from various traditions about what might ground our posture in the here and now towards reparations.
13: So Liz, we just yeah. walked through our reflection time. We did. Um, and so um, <laughs> it turns out uh, an hour goes really quickly. Um, and I wonder if we can maybe, do we wanna go straight into discussion and invite people to reflect? Um, <gasps>
12: I'm listening discussion. to you, but there's a baby. There's a baby, y'all. There's a baby. Her name is Lyra. Um,
13: I want to make sure that, that folks have time for a pretty robust discussion. So I think maybe let's hold the reflection questions for
12: after. What, what do you think? What if we give people two minutes just okay. to kind of process in their own being and then we'll come back together? So Yeah, let's just give you all two or three minutes to kind of, I feel like we just laid out so much and there's so many responses to have, and we all process in different ways. I'm somebody who wants to go straight to group discussion all the time, but I'm going to play music for two minutes. Jessica's going to put a couple of questions in the chat, and then we'll come back together and we'll really have most of the rest of our time to dive in together. Sounds good?
13: I love it. And also want to encourage people that while they're in the reflection time, take some deep breaths. Yes. (laughs)
12: Yes. <laughs> it's like, let's talk about spiritual practice only from our heads. <laughs> Here we go.
0: The devil's in the basement in my home. A flight of stairs is way too close. He comes for me when I'm alone. Collecting debts that I don't owe Follow me down where the waters run deep I'll let you drown in the worst of me If my intentions are good, why can't I come clean? If heaven's above, where does Am
12: Let's start to come back together. Jessica, I'm so glad you you offered the invitation to take a breath, if that's something that serves us. (laughs) I'm like, what are all of the words I could use? And it's um, funny because I was talking about yoga, right? Uh, Yoga literally means union um, of many things, not just breath and body. But I'm like, right, we have bodies. Our bodies have wisdom. Our bodies hold lots of things and can in some moments help ground us to one another. Hmm. So now we get to talk to each other about all of this coming up for you. What are you, what's bubbling? What questions might you have? Any of it? Would it help to have a more specific prompt? I wonder
16: if there,
13: and oh, go
15: ahead. Sorry, I I think what's present for me in this conversation is um, the struggle about words. Like words like faith, words like spiritual practice, um, that words tend to have concrete meanings depending on your context. And so we spend a lot of time to explain them. Um, But when you are just sharing each of you from your own context, from your own, like, where you are right now in your practice of this and your relationship to this idea of reparations and the practice of reparations, it gets a lot clearer. And so... Like for me, it just what was present for me was how the Jewish practice of the year of Jubilee is deeply connected in in my understanding of my Christianity because the most like one of the most important piece passages for me is luke um four sixteen to twenty one where Jesus opens the scroll in the temple, reads from Isaiah, and then says um, you know you're." today, this scripture passage is fulfilled in your hearing. So it's less about what people believe, but more about what people will do in response to hearing the truth. And all of that's connected to our process right now, today in the present. Less about what we believe, like faith-wise, the way you might think about that, but more about how do you put your true authentic self into practice today in community. So that's what you, presence for, you got all presents
12: for me. Oh, Joan, I'm so glad we recorded that. I want to just, like, take that and, and offer it to people.
13: And I, I really want to lift up that authenticity piece, Joan, because I know that, that, especially for white settler colonizers, as we go through this work, we can say, I don't want to be this anymore. And we are important humans also who can bring love and caring and just need to find our way back to our own traditions.
15: And it, I mean, I'm constantly, especially this week for some reason, very, very much struggling with taking up space, speaking my truth, standing in my truth uh, because I'm so present to all of the rest of it. But I know I can't do this from a place of weakness, I have to do it. Also, that my liberation is tied to everyone else's liberation. I have to stand for my own freedom too.
13: Mm-hmm. Thank you, John.
15: Judy, you have a hand
13: up too. Uh, yes,
14: thanks. Um, I'm just looking at these two questions that Jessica put up. And what are the traditions or practices that help ground you when you think about reparations as a lifelong commitment? Um, One is my relationship to nature. Uh, And when I'm in nature, um, remembering who has stewarded the land um, that I live on and um and then I, I don't know if it's a tradition or practice exactly but uh as someone who uh was born and grew up in the south i have ancestors who fought on the side of um, of uh the southern slave owners and I keep that in mind when I think about reparations um, as a responsibility and a way of redeeming that past. Um, What insight does your tradition or community of practice hold that feels relevant to reparations? As a Unitarian Universalist, uh, we have a principle, respect for the interdependent web of existence of which we are all a part. And that includes nature. And it reminds me of something I learned from a Native lawyer, which is that Native people believe that nature has rights. In our legal system, people have rights, corporations have rights, Property has rights, but nature does not have rights. And that is, a, is an oversight and an example of how our culture has, um, excuse the expression, missed the boat when it comes to respect for that interdependent web of which we are all a part.
12: Thank you so much for that, JD. It's really lovely. Any other comments or reflections that people might want to share? Well, silence is also its own reflection, which I really appreciate. But I'll actually offer another piece of this, and then we can see if there's um, conversation we want to have in response to that as we move towards the last part of our hour together. Come back little notes, where did you go? Ah, there it is. So as, as part of this, uh, over the past 45 minutes, we've come into space together. We've talked a little bit about what it means to draw on traditions that we call ours. We've talked about what it means to undo ownership as a concept, you know, no small thing, just saying. Uh, we've heard from folks about how they're connecting to their sense of tradition and practice and what they draw from. Jessica and I have talked a lot. And the place we wanted to land in this particular arc of things is on why it matters so much that communities that, that name and understand themselves as communities of faith or conscience or spiritual practice engage in reparations work. So this is a little bit more of a political analysis. And I'm, I'm going to make a case. I'm going to actually give you my little persuasion case of why I think it matters so much when communities that understand themselves as being a faith, conscience, or spirituality show up around reparations. And that's a, that, that is all sorts of, of communities. That is not just, that is, I mean, it is the responsibility of predominantly white folks to do the returning, but a lot of the communities we're talking about are multiracial, are, 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 um, are grounded in many identities. But I'm gonna, so I'm gonna talk about the role generally of faith, conscious, and spiritual practice, but in a way I am talking about particularly the responsibility that predominantly white communities hold. And so when, when, commun- and I, when communities of faith, conscious, and spiritual practice show up, they have a type of moral and ethical credibility within our political landscape. So people listen to what communities of faith and spiritual practice have to say. People pay attention to what those communities are doing. These communities have influence, a stage, a platform, a way of speaking into the political public that will get a reaction. And this is especially important when we talk about frontline political solidarity work as a part of reparations when 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 folks who look like clergy show up at the state capitol, the chemistry changes, the meetings we're able to get change the The way that we're reported in the news changes, and it is powerful, and that power can be used I mean, that power can be used for good or for bad. Not that I believe in a binary of good or bad, I don't. But it can be used towards liberation or it can be used towards, towards the continued exploitation of the land and profit of a few, right? But, but people will listen to faith communities in a way that matters. So that's number one, moral and ethical credibility on a political stage. The second reason I think it matters so much that communities of faith show up is that in, in that community, you can experience community support. Notice the joy and pleasure that we are able to experience in a total group of strangers because something has brought us together. It is, it's, it's the way you do anything is the way you do everything. The way you do the work is also the work itself. And so doing it through community in and of itself matters. I mean, however you come to that community, but this is one way that people find belonging. And so experiencing reparations through belonging is, it's pretty awesome, I would argue. All right, so moral and ethical credibility. Two, community support. Three, by the way, as I'm listing out points, can you tell the two lawyers wrote this content? I'm like, I have points and I have some points. Um, but number three, resources. Communities of faith own things. You have buildings and and meeting rooms and commercial kitchens. And it's particularly many types of religious institutions in the US under Christianity that have perpetuated harm, religious institutions of all traditions that have benefited from stolen land and the enslavement of black folks. And it's just, it's really helpful to give it back. So communities own a lot of stuff and there's a scale and a scope that happens when you give some of it back. Like we, a lot of our communities have large budgets and the ability to meaningfully give back resources in the aggregate. Last point: effective action. I never thought that I would be somebody who works with religious or faith or spiritual communities. That was a surprise to me. But when the movement for Black Lives started organizing Minnesota, it was it was faith congregations who were showing up. And more at the same time, when people showed up with their faith communities and spiritual communities, they showed up already partially organized. You had phone lists and, and email lists and meeting times and places where I could go talk to all of you in one place. And it was pretty magical. So this thing happened in my brain as I was coming, I was on my own journey about you know, all sorts of things. But I was like, oh, it's really powerful to organize with communities of faith and spiritual practice and congregations because you have already done some of the organizing. And so when we move people, we can move people a lot. And that was, it was not only exciting, it was also incredibly meaningful because I was watching in real time what was possible when people moved across traditions, but together. And so, I offer that as a reason why we don't just come as ourselves, but if we are part of a community of faith, conscious, and spiritual practice, why and how we can be organizing that community to come with us in the work of reparations. And as I say that and as I make that case, I'm curious, what else occurs to you? How does that resonate? What are you excited about when you think about organizing with your community into this work? what challenges come up, kind of all of it. We we have we have time to discuss.
17: This is Deborah Column. Um
12: Hello Deborah.
17: Hi. I um I just picked up uh Robin D'Angelo's newest book, Nice Nice Racism what's the name of it? Nice um Nice Racism. Uh it perfectly describes the white Christian church and the way we have dealt with racism and the past harms that the church has done. Uh, so while I love your enthusiasm about Christians organizing, my experience as a woman, clergy person, is that the minority voices are often silenced and quickly silenced by niceness. Um, And in Intel, we can do real work of anti-racism in the leadership systems of our churches. And I'm only talking from my context. You all need to talk about your own context. Um, We need to be very, very careful what we do because we end up perpetuating racism and it looks like niceness. Even when we go to the Capitol, I think some of those days on the Hill can be really, really harmful to people, to BIPOC. So while I love your enthusiasm um, for what Christian churches can do, I think we need to put the brakes on and allow our BIPOC people to take um, some leadership. But then also as white bodied people, we need to be very vocal in our support of those voices.
12: This is so rich and complicated, Deborah. I'm so grateful you brought it up. Uh, Carrie, I see your hand. Um, I'm going to say a brief comment and then give it to you. There is a push pull. There is a genuine tension. How do we move towards liberation when we are still in the circumstances of oppression? How do we navigate multiple forms of oppression and the internalized stuff that lives within our communities and institutions while also trying to push towards change, right? I have no answers. Funny enough. But there is something about the particular tension I think we can M- meditate on together is if particularly in this context black and native folks have to do all the leading. They end up doing all of the work <laughs> when it is it is white folks who have to fix the resources we stole. And so there's uh, there's all the stuff around imperfection and harm and it's just it is a mess, but it is it is a posture of being meaningfully led by people who are most impacted by the experiences we're addressing and not creating a situation where folks who have experienced the harm and violence are left to repair it. None of that is is like, none of that is like, here's what we now do. It's just a conversation. And because of time, I'm going to go straight to Carrie, who's had their hand up.
16: Well, I think I'll respond a little bit, too, to Deborah because our Advancing Justice group here in Western Mass in a congregational church, UCC, um, has committed harm and found ways to work through it. Imperfection is part of the process. We have a saying in our town, um, uh, there's Williamstown nice. And and I've heard of Minnesota Nice and I've seen it. You all know what I'm talking about. It's tone policing, though. It can be. And so I just want to remind folks that in every congregation, in every community, there's going to be a really broad range of activism. We need the folks who will stand up and be in your face and push you to be stronger and we need the ones who are calmer and more careful and cautious but i think that it's okay to to just try and know that oh my gosh you're going to commit harm you're going to mess up but It's worth it. And it's something we all have to work through. And it's white people's responsibility. Absolutely.